0: Welcome to the Global Discussion, discussions with creatives, leaders, and thinkers. My name is Simon Hodgkins, and today I'm joined by Maureen Tongay. Maureen, you're very welcome to the show. I'm really excited to talk to you because we specialize in creatives and leaders and thinkers, and you're right in the sort of crosshairs of that um, visual, uh, artistic uh, endeavor. So rather than me maybe continue with an introduction for you. Could you maybe share a little bit about who you are, what you do, and maybe how you you sort of came into the world that you are now, uh, which I think is fascinating. So over to you, Maureen.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so who am I is obviously, as we all know, always a big wide question is the answer, but I feel what I'm very excited to be building what I have been building over the past 10 years is ultimately a pioneering company that would be the first talent agency in the art world and position the artists as central to society. we in a world where we consume visuals all day and the visuals we consume are primarily through the advertising world, um, digital world, uh, the political world, but very little led by artists. Now, the problem is that if the core intent of imagery all day long, hundreds of them that you get exposed to is mainly commercial, you can imagine the kind of the state of our brain, they're not in really good shapes as we speak. So we wanted to really replace the artists within that visual sector. And that meant not only building their reputation very effectively, but also integrating their art in all contexts. And that reopens what I call the visual sector, which is the public art side, the brand collaboration, digital collaborations you can do with artists, the entertainment collaborations you could do with artists. And of course, the art styles and museum institutions. Um, as a person, I values-wise, um, I care deeply about equality, and I care deeply about equality to chances and opportunities. And that's the reason we uh, were the first big corp of the art world. Um I also care, I just I get addicted to talent. I like vision, I like ambition, I like I like that the optimism that you will get from very ambitious people. Um And I feel I get excited to ultimately be the person that can support the same people and put resources behind them. Um, I also still am a kid in a sense that I love magic. I love transforming places. Um, I find that the medium of art for this is incredibly effective in transforming the places that you'll be walking around and and approaching. So that will be all my interests as a person. I we spoke about it before the podcast, but I grew up in a tiny island off the west coast of France. Um, definitely more birds than people uh, 9,000, 9,000 people total um, during the year. Um, but I think I always say that for me, this upbringing—you know—I was surrounded by beauty. I was in nature. I was. It was a beautiful place, um, and. And that's very much now that I live in the center of London, now that our age 3 is in the center of London, and that one out of two people will be living in cities by 2050, I feel that that exposure to inspiring visual, and inspiring visual environment, um, is something that I took from my childhood and stayed with me, that I feel all places deserve that. And, and we should all be exposed to this, because I think it really shaped me.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that, Maureen. And um, of course, living and, and growing up where you did, uh, Maureen is such a beautiful name. Um, so it's great uh, to have that link and obviously being surrounded with that sort of beautiful environment and that transitioning into today's visual world where you're right, we are bombarded with many visuals today, um, particularly in a commercial setting. But I wanted to ask if I can, with empty Art, Um, you must have to review an awful lot of portfolios, you must be looking at a lot of different artists. What's that actually like, the mechanics of that behind the scenes? Is it as busy as I would assume it is?
1: Yeah, it's definitely busy. Um, Over 200 applications a month, sometimes more, sometimes uh, slightly less. And Ultimately, we have a selection committee, we have a team that reviews a portfolio. I mean, you know, you're always scouting. I think when you care about talents, you're always scouting for the top ones. Um, they are really like rare diamonds. I think if you were speaking to a VC, they would be saying the same thing. Like there they always is that magical moment where you encounter someone and you think, wow, that person is just Got it all. Like they lack resources, they like support, but the rest is sorted. Um, they have the vision, they have the resilience, they have the ambition, they have the depth of content, um, they have the ability to reinvent themselves and progress forward, and they're obviously very talented. Um, that's actually quite rare. Um, and you know, I think behind me there's a sculpture of Raven De Clark, who is 27 and is the youngest woman. To to date, to have ever got three permanent sculptures public, uh, uh, commissioned in a public space, and who's been kidding it this year? Um, I met Raven when she was 22, just out of school, and you know that deal, for instance, is over two million. It's a game changer of a deal at her age, and and yeah, I just that first cup of tea I knew, um, it was on a Saturday morning. I still remember it, and I just was completely convinced that Raven will become massive. Um, so you do, you know, it's it takes a lot to be that kind of talent, and there's a lot of compromises that go with it, and I think there's a type of people that is acceptant of what it takes to get there.
0: And and I think what you've touched on there is something that I know you believe passionately, which is what a lot of um, galleries would would focus on, selling art on walls but you really do support the artists don't you in terms of how you work with them and help them to achieve those sort of commercial and cultural endeavors
1: yeah I think my relationship with objects is one that is connected via people in a sense that like I I ultimately um see the object of this manifestation of the vision of someone um as a person I think it's interesting because you know we always think of the Vanitas painting for the for the art world, which is like acquiring tons of objects. I think i probably I've always been more attracted to storytelling. I was never that person I need to acquire loads of objects. It's just it's not in me. Um in fact when I was broke and started my company, like I was very much living out of a suitcase and that didn't disturb me to have very little in terms of objects. So I think my connection with objects is because I invest in what I think are the top talents. And that's how I ended up collecting art later. And that's how that's why I backed them. So by that definition of having a very different relationship than the traditional one with objects, I think we shifted away from looking at art as a visual narrative, as storytelling, and ultimately, human beings that can push forward those visions um, but as a person, I was already like this. I feel that was my connection with the arts in the, in the first place.
0: Yeah, thank you, Maureen. And I wanted to ask you a little bit on that because you've kind of hinted at, you, you sort of mentioned the VC world uh, and you're kind of looking at lots of artists and you're looking for that that thought leader, that inspirational thinker, somebody who's different. And as you, you, you say, they can be very rare, you know, to find and to spot in the wild, if I can use that phrase. Um and of course it's 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 very exciting when you find that fit. Um, but you you didn't start off here. I know you did a very a, a little spell with the BBC, but then you went into the sort of managing galleries, didn't you? And you kind of worked your way to where you are today and you've been successfully running uh, MT art now, I think since twenty fifteen, if I'm writing same. Yeah. So yeah. what was that journey like? Did you always have this burning passion to develop your own agency to develop your own? Uh, sort of art um, enterprise what what was the driving factor behind that or were you just destined to end up where you are now
1: um I mean you know that all these things are so tied you would never get to know exactly what was the biggest driving force I feel the interest and the curiosity is definitely there I'm endlessly curious but about anything I found loads of things really interesting in fact I got back into ballet this year and I'm now at like three times a week and I found everything really interesting. I just, I am that kind of person that like shows enthusiasm for things in depth for a very long time. um. And I don't even go through phases because by the second that spark is there, then I'm there for like years, you know? So it's, um. I think the arts was this for me where I found it fascinating. I found this, you know 65% of us are visual learners more than verbal thinkers and I think I was probably one uh, when I was younger I found that words were clumsy, words were um tend to like only cause a part of what I was trying to to convey and I found that the visual arts were conveying it much more effectively so effectively so I think yes my, my connection with the arts was from the start I think in terms of professional experience um I think something that I think I have as a skill to this day is I identify what an opportunity looks like, which is a, a kind of one your main core skill set should be as a CEO, I think, um, is, is confronting what is an opportunity and what is not. Um, and I think probably a talent is probably in the same position. Um, and usually, opportunities never come at the perfect timing. When I was offered my first investment into building that gallery in Los Angeles, or even my first managing role when I was 21. I was too young for it. I I lacked experience, but I could see that this was such a huge opportunity that not accepting it will be the madness of it all. Me having to go through this deep learning curve of it was uh, better than refusing something that could be life-changing. And I think I've retained the attitude where you know, my penguin publishing deal was offered to me um as I was to give birth um of my second, which was definitely not the perfect timing. It's, but I've retained always that understanding that if something like this is coming your way, you just make it work. Um because you know that ultimately, this this are this is where uh, things really step up is when you say yes to the right to opportunities. Um, so that first part of my career I just seized opportunities, um, and then the second part I just built the company on the values I really wanted to do from the experience I had first acquired.
0: And uh, I mean, it's wonderful to hear that. Um... Because I know that you you really are supporting, growing, promoting artists. Um, but the the agency today it's a very successful enterprise in terms of if we look at it in sort of more commercial terms, in terms of the money, in terms of the revenue that the that the organization supports. But you're also known as an organization that can bring these really talented, forward-thinking artists into the world and helping them to become uh, visual but you also work with brands don't you and you you work with a number of brands how does that work what's the mechanics of that?
1: The me, building reputation is always 360 and I know this is now used by every single agency under the sun but it basically means that you know, an artist needs large audiences, needs credibility, and needs revenue streams. That's what we build. You know, we build revenue streams, we build that credibility, we build those audiences. Audiences are everywhere. Um, I think that culture is in every corner, is, is on the underground, is at the bus stop, it's at a football match, it's everywhere. Um, I am not of the position that my sector took for a long time, that culture... The high culture was only in one place. Um, for me, culture is everywhere. And, and I want to make sure that therefore the most inspiring artists are integrated to that everyday culture. Because um, I value everyday culture. And I think that is that is what shapes everything, the way we look at the world, the way we feel. Um, and I was also having that issue with the traditional sector, because it was said, it was saying that ultimately culture is only something that we should consume once every month and a half. Um, I wanted to consume it every day. Um, I wanted to be part, in fact, of my everyday and how I kind of approach the world. Um, So we just looked at the everyday and and went on to integrating the arts and all components of it. But again, I think it's also because we felt we're not better people bringing you what's wonderful. We also want to make sure we in conversation with the everyday and learning from the culture on the ground. So it's not me being above and bringing you what's great. It's more... Ultimately, being on the ground every single day, like, fed, up, like very much, feeding yourself off from that culture and contributing to it with artists that you adore.
0: That's wonderful, and um, just for our audience, you know, watching or listening to us around the world, I just want to mention a couple of things here because. Um, Just so people know, like you were awarded, uh, you you know, with Forbes, they do this 30 under 30. Uh, You were part of that. You're awarded that by Forbes, uh, which is a huge uh, recognition. But you're also the uh, Art and Culture UK Entrepreneur of the Year. Um, You were the NatWest Awards. It's a a big bank uh, over this side of the world um uh, the NatWest Awards and Woman of the Year um only a few short years ago uh by the magazine is it WOTC I think yeah Yeah. correct um you've also done TED Talks um and you mentioned earlier the book and I want to come back to the book as well can you tell us a little bit about visual detox and working with Penguin and how all that how that works tell us a little bit about that
1: I mean firstly I have been very lucky I think Forbes was very much the most meaningful one. It's actually quite sweet because I still remember we were in New York with my husband. And I just, you know, it's I'm very lucky to be loved now for by by Will for over almost two to be 10 years, so about the same time as a, as a company. And it's um he really wanted me to get it. I think it was more from him than it was from me, because he really felt that ultimately uh, we would deserve as a company to be on this and. Being more in the tech sector, he was seeing loads of people being on this and less on the art side. Um, but he therefore scrolled through because in New York and London, time was slightly different and it was the European Forbes. He scrolled through without telling me and he told me because I was one of the latest because my surname is always one of the latest. He scrolled through with so much anxiety until he could actually reach me and apparently he was holding his breath for that whole time. So I'm always quite emotional when thinking about this because it was it was that little bit of confidence that he believed i needed um and i think he was right it gave me that thinking that i could do it and i think there's always things for all of us that are different for me that was that little push that says you are on the right direction because let's not forget that disrupting a sector means you might not always be liked at all times you might be quite challenged with it and and you know forbes gave me that little thing of you're on the right track, you know, Um, keep going, which sometimes you need to hear, especially in the early days. Going back to the book feels, again, quite existential um, in the same way than Forbes because um, it it was a way to articulate our vision. And again, on the disrupting side, you're rarely fully understood. You are uh, always seen as quite threatening um, and therefore not always liked and not always kind of... um, Seen for the full vision that you're trying to bring and and as you've heard for us the values and how we see the sector is very much why we get up in the morning as a team so it feels really special to ultimately be trusted by penguin which is by far my favorite publisher it was my number one i wanted penguin um it was definitely i actually am so pleased i got what it's it's um it's it's really funny because I never thought I would get my number one choice. Um, and I'm still humbled that I got my number one choice because they were very much my number one. And, and therefore I think through this, it's articulating that out of hundreds of thousands of images that you see every day, what is the place of the arts? And most importantly, like, do you really want to be in a society where most of what you look at every single day is making you feel utterly miserable? I'm gonna give you one study um, to just spark this, this thinking. Uh, the University of Warwick led a study just under one million people. And the higher they ad spent, the higher they got exposed to that commercial imagery across 27 European countries, the more miserable they are. Um, happiness is still tied to imagery. And yet we don't teach visual critical thinking. We don't teach vis- visual education. We're surrounded by them. Um, they shape us. Like, you go see that image and you're like oh I don't look that good today anymore or oh, I meant to buy that dress like you don't you really need you don't really need to rush to Zara ever to buy an urgent top right but the feeding of the advertising that we get and the visual narratives tells us we must absolutely strive on on that lifestyle we must be that lifestyle and that's how we will reach our happiness and of course we don't um, but I think therefore arts has a very special place in this especially in light of the many challenges ahead of us in the climate change crisis, that you know we need to reshape what are the values we want to see on a visual narrative level and how do we insert it on our commute to work, on our everyday existence, what do we make of it? And I think that's a reflection on this.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that, uh, Maureen. Um, it, it's such important uh, pieces. And I, I'll, I'll come back to something that you said a moment ago. Uh, that reminded me of a question when I asked you. But before I do that, the other thing I wanted to talk about is because I know some of your TED Talks, you've, you've been talking about how art can transform cities. Yeah. And um, you also mentioned earlier, as we were talking, the amount of people that will just end up living in this urban sprawl, the city uh, life. Uh, how important is art now? Uh, is, it, is it more important now than it's ever been, particularly as we're all dwelling in cities maybe we're working a lot more remotely than we used to um, but art and our, uh, our relationship with art has it changed did the pandemic change things did we reevaluate what was important
1: it's, it's really interesting because um artists seen and this is why i'm so i always use the visual sector because we live in the visual world and unless we're blind we're part of it but we don't take part in the art world. And that's the difference for me in that sense. And, But I feel, I was just at the um, launch of the Arts and Impact Report of McKinsey on Monday evening. And it's a striving sector. It's actually the, one of the biggest sector um, in the UK. And, and what makes, for instance, this country completely striving is through its cultural sector. That's in terms of growth, it's in terms of jobs, it's in terms of the many opportunities um, it creates. And, and yet, it's something poorly understood, very integrated to our school um, curriculum, um, and always left to the side. Like, to give you an idea, like, we are running up. And sorry, this is a very UK-focused um, anecdote again. But we're running up towards the elections. Um, we've already worked out how many VCs, how much VCs who are in tech will receive. Um, money-wise, from the Conservative and Labour, we have absolutely no ideas on any of the policies, the cultural side. And yet, when you look at how little we give, and the um, the outcome that comes from the sectors, economic growth included, is huge, and it's actually currently, and that's what McKinsey was saying, outperforming the tech sector for the for the input of investment that goes in and the output. And I highly encourage for everyone to. Look at the report that just came out on the 20th of November this year uh, by McKinsey, but and I think that's that's the many ways in which I think visual education is undermined on a constant basis. I was undermined through my entire education, and um, it was seen as something pretty and decorative and and fluffy and sweet that I'd be doing on the side. And um, again, like this doesn't apply to any hard data. The hard data I gave you that. 65% of us are visual learners more than verbal learners, shows that this is most of us um, connect better with visuals than words. And the fact that therefore um, the, the visuals, the way they communicate to the brain, they commu- they travel much faster, they impact us much faster than words. All these reasons, especially in the rise of AI as well, where we need that visual critical thinking, should be all reasonings to why we'd be like less invest in visual education Let's really make sure we have a strong, creative cultural and art sector, but it's, um, you know, it's always the the afterthought. Um, When I wrote when I did my TED talk uh, on public art and and my paper on the same topic at the time when you were googling smart cities, art was nowhere to be found. all of this thing shows that it's enough to fall. Now, this is the reason, again, I did that book and why I'm encouraging of initiative like the McKinsey one because the data shows the opposite. The data is clear for well-being is much better, for economy growth is much better, for the way in which we interact with the world we must mostly visuals. There's absolutely nothing that says that it's a tiny minority of people in a corner of the room. This is something that is touching all of us. Um, so the more we communicate with that data, I hope the more people realize that this is something that we should really pay more attention to. Yeah,
0: and I, I think it's fascinating what you said because you, you mentioned AI as well. And I think in this generative world that we're living in now, where there's just stuff being churned out all the time, the appreciation of art and the, the benefits that we get from it and the cultural resonance that that we get from it and the importance of that in a, in a visual I suppose, learning style, if I can use that phrase. It seems to be really, really critical right now. Uh, and you're right. I, I mean, I, I remember a time when, you know, it was very hard to see any investment in public art, public infrastructure uh, that had artistic, you know, it was built to the cheapest grade materials, to what it was an afterthought, to your point. Uh, I think there has been some change there, but it, it still seems like there's an awful long way to go here, Marie.
1: Yeah, and I think it's why, again, like I hope the book will be helpful in this on giving methods to analyze imagery, giving little cues ultimately to how imagery is affecting us. Like, it's for me, it's also going beyond the constant conversation of is social media bad for you? It's the content of that social media that's also the problem. You know, like if you were on social media only... um, Watching in-depth documentary with five different experts, like probably would not have the same impact that we have today. Um, but we never want to discuss that visual content. Ninety percent of the visual content you see on those platforms are advertising a skinny body and a lifestyle and a way of being. That is ultimately what we currently see. So, it's it's important to be aware of this because it's like the fish in the water. If you're not aware of it, you don't realize that's actually what shapes you. But all this thing shapes you, the advertising world knows it more than anybody else. They know, like Coca-Cola spends 4.2 billion in advertising every year and sells 1.8 billion products a day. They understand that they need to advertise to you visually with their red color as, as fast as you start um, you know, walking. And it's that shows the power of colors, the power, of the symbolic, the power of imagery. Like Coca-Cola. It's very much in two seconds. If I tell you red, you think red. If um, even our emojis, like if you look at the burger emoji, that's the McDonald's um logo symbols, like in two seconds, all those images are like shaping us and they're shaping behaviors. Um, not being educated means we're gonna be manipulated by it. As the rise of fake imagery also happens, it's even more manipulation coming into play. And I think that's very dangerous. It's um it's a uh, we worried about misinformation when it was just words and I put that in brackets because it was dangerous enough but I think misinformation when it comes to visuals for me is much more scary
0: yeah and it's so inspiring hearing you talk uh, on this topic because you know you're one of the people that are championing art and championing uh, the sector and it it's I'm going to I'm probably using the wrong phrase here but it's like a welcome break it's like fresh air it's like pure oxygen from this bombardment that we have of our senses from the commercialization of imagery uh, so it's so refreshing and inspiring to hear you talk I do want to squeeze in something that I said I'd come back to which is um I think you're also involved a little bit in the COP24 discussion aren't you
1: Yeah um so COP is coming up again this year I should just open this week And for me, like, I will be giving a keynote speech on again, how do we shift our visual narrative um, with nature? I mean, at a highlight, it's you know, we spoke slightly a little bit about it earlier, but it's that bombardment of a certain type of lifestyle um, has also made us believe that, therefore, it's our lifestyle against nature. And we see it, maybe you remember when Andrew Tate, the influencer, was clashing with Greta Thunberg, every time she was saying something that was sustainably led, he was sending those images of like fast cars and like jets and all of this. That's because it's always in a power dynamic. It's because men have always wanted to, whether it's own nature or if they couldn't, will feel it's a power dynamic with it so that monstrous nature that could create a shipwreck or that could create storms or so i think that common narrative again re- reconnecting us emotionally away from the lifestyle and with nature is going to be quite key to think of the next steps with ultimately all the challenges that are ahead of us so it's again thinking and analyzing of imagery to this date and how we've communicated about this issue and suggesting steps for me, and
0: how do we change that? Well, you're certainly busy, that's for sure, Maureen. You've got an awful lot happening uh, all the time. It's great to see. It's so, as I said, it is inspiring and encouraging to hear from, you know, somebody that really values this and understands the the topic as well as you do. Um, I want to ask you if I can just change gears a little bit because I don't want to run out of time. I want to squeeze in a couple of extra questions before we do come to a close here. We're at the the time of recording, people people are thinking about the next year, what are their plans for the next six months, 12 months, 18 months. How does it work for somebody in your line of work? What are you like from a planning perspective? Do you take each day as it comes? Are you a meticulous planner? What's on your roadmap? What's on your horizon? How do you go about organizing that in your world?
1: Um, that's a very interesting question. I so I am definitely the founder and therefore CEO, who is a starter and a finisher, which means that ultimately the middle planning is where I will be failing uh, short, and where my lucky CEO is much better than I. And I, I can be incredibly philosophical and vision driven, but I'm also a very day-to-day person. Is that in between, therefore, that I don't master? Um, and I'd like you know as I speak to you this morning I still continue to squeeze ballet for now an and it doesn't matter how my day will unfold and how highs and lows and everything I insert my routine um time with my kids fix that makes me happy as part of my routine um even when there's loads of big things happening and that's my day-to-day and that makes me very grounded because it feels like therefore you have control of what matters most to you and then the rest obviously is completely out of your control but it also means that therefore you can respond better to that uh, flux of information because you can take the highs and lows better Mm -hmm. and therefore with the vision I think luckily the vision has never changed so I think it you know I've been able to build towards that vision but I think again I believe in that discipline of the everyday to build towards it Um, and I turn up to work, I show up every single day, I put the same amount of work for the past, God knows how many years at this point. Um, and I think I also therefore insert joy in the everyday in whatever format. So that even very busy period, very stressful periods still have those nuggets um, of time with people that you love and things that you love doing as well. And that in itself is less of a planning, it's more of a coping mechanism but at this stage of my life, I think if I am a happy, striving person that will feed off my company culture, that would ultimately make me turn up the best possible way to represent the company and attend to the vision that we want to give it. So I think a coping mechanism is probably more important um, than a pure planning, um, uh, pure planning way of doing things.
0: I love that. Thank you for sharing that, Marie. Um, look, finally, uh, is there anything else that you would like to share with our international audience today? And secondly, and really importantly, if people want to find out more about the work that you do, the book and everything else that's going on in your world, where is the best place to point people to?
1: And um, so, as you know, I'm very active on the communication level. And um, I would always recommend Instagram or LinkedIn because I think it's nice to follow the journey or the stories of companies or the funders, because It gives you that little human feeling of why they're building what they're building it also gives you an insight into the shiny updates because you see the daily as well so highly recommend if you type my name or the one of the company you can either go company side or you can go through me but i will give you the behind the scenes of how ultimately the company is built on a day-to-day basis Um, things i want people to know you know what i'm going to leave you with a thought um, as a female founder that I think sadly still has to be remembered reminded, which is that right now for one pound going into investment in Europe, so therefore more one euro, 85p goes to four male teams so, or one man leading the company, 14p goes to a co-founder that's male and a co-founder female only one figure or two female funder. That I think is something that we know and quite aware that therefore your chances to fundraise, especially in recession, are even less so. But I'm going to pile up a second fact, which is that in the same bracket, if you are a single female funder, you have 120% chances more um, to be attacked online. Um, and that's something that is happening nonstop for the past few years, that for the first time, Emma Bennington on The Guardian wrote about it last year saying that it creates a, um, for young girls, they're becoming less ambitious because they're scared. Um, there's a backlash against female leaders, plus you also have less chances on the financial side to get there. This is heartbreaking because ultimately, you know, I am, um, I've been past the baton by so many generations who've been fighting for this. And, and bear in mind that I'm in the privileged category, I'm in the white population of this from a middle class background so i really should be in the nicest category of that 1p um but the fact that it's 1p and then you have so much risk of being attacked and so much pressure even the media there's a harvard review did a brilliant piece on the objectives used when it comes to female funders versus male funders this is something that's still present on a day-to-day basis and the thing is is like between the attacks and the fundraising, we are really struggling to convince women to want to do what we're doing. Um, so we need help on really thinking awareness-wise: what are the current biases? How do we break them? How do we reframe them? Um, and bearing that in mind, as this is still a very appalling stats on the ground.
0: Well, that is a lot of uh, very uh, thoughtful points to leave our audience with um there's an awful lot in that um and so much work left to do and I think some of the points that you've made there when you just pause for a moment and reflect on it it's staggering isn't it what you've said it is yeah. you know to, to believe yeah, that it's we're
1: breaking because that one yeah. P it's like I mentioned is likely to be mostly privileged girls as well of middle class background and white like me so this is the problem is also this is, doesn't even touch your social economics of underprivileged. Was in it's it's a ridiculous stats, um, and and it's very discouraging. And we can't ask young girls to be motivated enough. We need society to change as they ultimately try and do things. And and I I can understand if someone might not want to go ahead with it because that sounds scary. And um, so we need to facilitate a much better place for them to do to build companies in.
0: Couldn't agree more. And thank you so much indeed for raising those points and for spending some time with me here today on the Global Discussion. It does bring us nicely uh, to the end of this episode. I want to thank, if I can, everybody around the world who's been watching or listening to this episode. Make sure that you follow, like, subscribe, do everything I need you to do to help support the podcast. Go and check out everything uh, that Marine's involved with too. And I hope that you'll join me back here for some more discussions with creatives and leaders and thinkers just like Maureen. Maureen it's been a real pleasure to spend some time with you again today my friend.
1: Well thank you so much for having me.